0: Good morning, everyone. What a privilege to open up God's Word today together. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14, please. And if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read verses 8 through 18. What a privilege, and I love coming to Grace Church of Orange on Sunday mornings. I love how eager everyone is to get into the Word of God. I love your hunger for the Word. We're going to trust God to do what only He can do in us and through us. So Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 8. This is the word of God. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave them himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And Lord, thank you that you are here. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken, you have given us your word. We pray by your spirit that you would change us. I pray, Lord, for anyone here who is not a believer in Christ, that they would hear the gospel today and believe. I pray for all the believers, Lord, that we would be obedient to what you teach us. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. The big question I'm asking today is, who do you worship? Who do you worship? And this passage breaks down very nicely. The first three verses, God does this miracle. A lame man is able to walk. The next three verses, the pagans that he is, that he is around, the ones that are watching the miracle, give the credit to man, not God. God. And then the last four verses, what we see is the apostles correct the error. They straighten things out. I want to give you the main idea right away. The main idea of this passage is this. God is not worshipped if we are. Therefore, we need to point everything to him if we're going to be useful to him, if we're going to be productive for the kingdom, if we're going to be fruitful for Christ. God is not worshipped if we are, and we need to point everything to him. Now, how do we get here? You know that as we've been going through the book of Acts, I've been doing some review uh, almost every week just to catch us up and find out now where exactly are we and how did we get here? Now, we've been through 13 chapters in the book of Acts. We started at Acts 1-1 and we've just gone verse by verse through the whole book. And now we're in chapter 14, verse 8. And how do we get here? We got here because the book of Acts tells us something very significant. It tells us that this is this is all about Christ's work through his witnesses for his purposes. And all the way through the book, we've been seeing God's purposes as Jesus works through his witnesses. The, book, the letter starts, the 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 book starts with Jesus calling his witnesses. And, and then the Spirit indwells the church, the promised Holy Spirit indwells the church, and then the witnesses start preaching. That's what's going on, and, and God is confirming the preaching of the gospel with miracles, and people are being healed. You see in chapter 5, God purifying his church in a very startling situation. Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. But you see God stretching the faith of his people through trials. And he's scattering them out, and as they scatter, the gospel goes with them, and more and more people are reached for Christ. This is what's going on in the book of Acts. People are repenting from sin, turning to Jesus, and they're responding, and they're praising God's good grace. The outcome is, we get to chapter 13, and you see a church that is going with the gospel. A church that takes the gospel to other lands. It's a healthy church. It's the kind of church we always want to be. It's a church with spiritual leadership and spiritual worship and spiritual ministry. They have spiritual opposition because they're doing what pleases God. But we see spiritual victory because many people are coming to faith in Christ. Now the church in Antioch, when you see it in chapter 13, this was the launching pad for the church to send its first missionaries, its first sent ones. And I know we use the term missionaries a lot. But I think it's helpful to know that the word missionary, the word missions, the word mission, they're not in the Bible. This comes from a Latin term, missio, which means to send. But the big thing that Christians are supposed to do is make disciples. A lot of times we use these terms, missions and missionaries, and I think we, we short sell it and think it's only people that go you know, overseas to foreign fields. If you think of the term mission, you might think of an old California church building. If you think of missions, you might think of, you know, grass huts and stone axes. The first missions trip I ever went on was to Irian Jaya, Indonesia, and I spent a lot of time around grass huts and stone axes. When you think of missionaries, you might just think of people who only go to foreign fields, but you need to know that missionary and missions is not a biblical category of workers in the church. When Jesus gave what we know as, of the, first, as the Great commission of Matthew 28:18 through20, he said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age." Now in that passage, there is one big verb. One big word, and it's make disciples. That's our calling as Christians. And so all believers, not just those who are sent to foreign fields, all believers are sent to make disciples. If you want to use the biblical terms, you'd say that we, we disciple people. We are disciples of Christ. We are disciplers. We're sending out disciplers. That's what this church has done for years and years. Since its existence, since its very first day, we have sent out disciplers. We have sent them out to many places. Cambodia, Dominican Republic, Europe, Africa, Asia. Recently we sent out disciplers to Germany and Greece and Montana and England and China and Hawaii and Japan and more. We are going to send out some disciples soon to South Africa and to North Philadelphia and to the East Coast. We're sending disciples. We're sending every single week. Every week. Every week from this place that God has given us to gather, we are sending disciples out to The far reaches of Orange and Tustin and Anaheim and Fullerton and Irvine and Cyprus and Downey and every city around here from from in concentric circles from this place out. And every Christian, every Christian is, is called to be a discipler. Use the term missionary if you want, but you have to apply it to every Christian sent by God to make disciples. And this is what we've been seeing in the book of Acts. This is what we've been seeing all along. And and this missional purpose, this this sending to make disciples is, is really huge in this book. You're sent by God to make disciples. So Acts should hit you right where you live, in your neighborhood, in your home, in your workplace. We are sending disciples every single week out to places that most of us can't go. We're sending them into homes where we don't have the key for that home. We're sending them into office buildings and into schools and onto sports fields and into neighborhoods. And, and, and it's all of us, and we're going out all the time. We talk about our Super 8. Well, it's a Super 8 and beyond. And we've been freed by Jesus to do this. We've been freed by Jesus to serve God's purpose in our generation and this freedom in Christ and we saw this in in chapter 13 was it was planned before the world began and it was promised through the prophets it was provided at the cross and it's proclaimed it was proclaimed in the first century it's being proclaimed today Until Jesus comes back, this gospel is going to be proclaimed. And we saw in the last part of chapter 13 that it's a devastating gospel. That it will either devastate your sin or your soul. That you will either judge yourself unworthy of eternal life by your choice. Or you will believe and you will discover that you were appointed unto eternal life by God's choice. And, and so it's a devastating gospel. It, it, Romans 1.16 tells us the gospel is the power of God to salvation. That's the word where we get our word dynamite, dunamis. It is dynamite for blessing or for judgment. Now when we got into chapter 14, at the very beginning of the chapter, what you see is you see the first two sent ones, Barnabas and Paul, and they are very fruitful in their service. A lot of people are coming to faith in Christ. They are focused on God's calling, they are relying on God's power, they are unafraid of any opposition coming their way, they have the wisdom of God, and they are teaming up for Jesus and the gospel. That's what God's calling was for them right then. They were sent by a church, and they were sent together, and for this time, for that time that was happening, they're going to split up, and we're going to see that soon. But for them, they they were teaming up for Jesus and the gospel. Now the opposition that they received had chased them out of Antioch, Pisidia, so they traveled a hundred miles to Iconium, and then they get chased out of there, and they go 20 more miles south to Lystra, which is where we find them today. So in Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 18, this is where we're at today, we see these three things happening. God does a miracle, the pagans attribute the miracle to man, and then the apostles straighten things out. they correct the false thinking. This is what happens in this passage, and what you see is you see true worship and, and falsehood, idolatry, side by side, just like we do in our lives on a daily basis. True worth worship and idolatry side by side. And it should cause us to ask, "Who do I worship? Who do I worship?" What am I worshiping on a daily basis? What is the trajectory of my life? Am I worshiping God? Because if God is not worshiped, then we are. And, and we must point everything to him instead of ourselves. The first thing we see in this passage, we'll look at verse 8, and verses 8 through 10, is that God does this miracle, and it's a gospel-attesting miracle. That's, you see miracles in the book of Acts, and God is basically saying, my message is true, here is the proof. And so God heals a man, and there's three things that we hear about this man. He couldn't use his feet, he was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. So there's a threefold intensity to the description, and basically it's telling us this. This guy's situation was humanly stuck. He wasn't going anywhere. Now this man, who had never walked, who was lame from birth, and could not use his feet, was listening to Paul speaking. The word listening there is the imperfect tense of the verb, which indicates that he was in an ongoing habit of listening to Paul as he taught the gospel, as he taught the word of God. And so he's he's on an ongoing basis listening to Paul preach. And Paul sees that he has faith to be made well, to be healed, and so Paul says really loudly, so that everyone can hear, he basically says, get up! You know, get up! And the guy springs up. This is the guy that was born unable to walk, couldn't use his feet, had never walked in his whole life. So here you have God doing a miracle, and it's a sign and a wonder to confirm the gospel, and the power of God is on display. God is displaying his power. How did he get to that spot? Well, God had providentially orchestrated the events so that this man, who had never walked, was listening to Paul preaching the gospel. And then God miraculously broke into the natural order of things, did something that only God can do, and healed the man. Heals to confirm the word of God, and you have gospel-transformed lives as a result. This is what happens in this healing, in this miraculous occurrence. Now, the next thing you see, verses 11 through 13, the people totally misunderstand. The people completely don't get it, and the crowd worships the apostles, worships Barnabas and Paul. They, verse 11, they see what Paul does, and so they say loudly, so everyone can hear, the gods have come down in the form of man. They're saying the Greek gods have become incarnate. And they're calling Barnabas Zeus, which is also known as Jupiter. And they're calling Paul Hermes, which is also known as Mercury, because he's the chief speaker. And, and they're doing this, and, and they're talking in their own dialect, the Lyconian dialect, which would have been kind of a... Uh, a rare dialect, and Paul and Barnabas catch wind of it later, but they don't hear it right away because this is not their language. So they're attributing god godlike qualities. They're saying these are gods. Now, these are false gods. These are Greek false gods. Now, there was a story that had circulated in, in Lystra that Zeus and Hermes had come down to their town at one point and were seeking lodging. And that no one in the town showed any hospitality to them at all, except one old couple that brought them in and gave them lodging and fed them. And as the story goes, as a result of of the inhospitality of the the town, they, they sent a flood and killed everyone with the flood, except this older couple. Instead, their little house became this magnificent palace. And even when they died, Zeus and Hermes made them into two tall trees. That was the story, that was the fable that was getting circulated through Lystra. And this is what they knew. So you can imagine when they see this miracle and they attribute it to Zeus and Hermes, to Mercury and Jupiter, they're thinking, we had better do it right this time. We don't want to get washed away in the flood and die. So the crowd reacts with superstitious fear. Have you ever done that? Have you ever reacted in superstitious fear? There's a lot of Christians who do that. You know, I, this is the old one, you know, uh, step on, I can't step on a crack because I'll break my mother's back. Or I can't use this number. Or I can't uh, do something on this day and... A lot of Christians are very superstitious, very syncretistic, where they're taking biblical truth and then just wacky ideas and folding them into their life. But this crowd, they react very superstitiously. They're in fear. And then the priest of Zeus. Now, he's got a temple at the gate of the city. So, you know, you go into this town, and it's like, this is Zeus' town. Zeus owns this town. There weren't many Jews in Lystra. This was a a pagan city. Paul is dealing with pagan people. So the the priest of Zeus brings cows and flowers. He's going to sacrifice the cows, the the garlands, the flowers were around the neck of the cows. That's what you would put on the neck of the victim for sacrifice. And he wants to get in on this and sacrifice with the crowds as well. This is what's going on. They're they're already worshiping Paul and Barnabas. And then they do demonstrative acts to show their adoration. They're, They're blaspheming God. You get to over to verse 14, there's a third thing in this passage, this is the best thing, the apostles correct the crowds, they straighten things out, they, they catch wind of it, and they, they tear their clothes. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that tearing your clothes is a sign of grief. What you might not know, though, is it's a sign of grief in the face of blasphemy when someone blasphemes. And so they know that these people are blaspheming God and so they're, they're rip, ripping their clothes and they go running out into the crowd and they're like, no, don't do this. Have you ever come a, uh, upon a group of people doing something you know they shouldn't do and you're friends with them and you're like, maybe it's your kids, you find, you, you know, you, you catch your kids doing something crazy and you're like, no, don't do that. Or you, you walk into your friend's house and everybody's talking about somebody, gossiping about someone, and you're like, What are you doing? So they, they say, don't do this. We're just like you. We're sinful too. We don't, we don't deserve to be worshipped. We're not worthy of that. Don't do this. They wouldn't take the glory. They, they didn't say, you know, thank you, thank you very much. We'll be here all week. No, they said, we, we bring you good news. We bring you the gospel. You should turn from these things, these empty things these vain things these things that are going to ruin you stop doing this and turn to and here's what paul is talking to pagans now they don't have the 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 old testament they don't have the scriptures he says you should turn to a living god he's going to tell them about the one true god but he's starting where they're at and he says the living god who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them he's telling them about the creator of the universe Now, this is is not really what they want to hear. They want to worship Barnabas and Paul because, remember, they don't want to get swept away by a flood if they're not hospitable. They're thinking that they're Greek gods. and And Paul and Barnabas are going, we're not. We're not. And then Paul says, in the past God let you go your own way, even though you didn't acknowledge Him, even though you didn't believe in Him, and He did good to you. He providentially did good to you. He gave you rain. He watered your crops. He he made you glad with food. He's, He's saying, even though you didn't acknowledge Him, He has been so good to you. And with those words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them, supposing them to be Greek gods. Crazy stuff. But we are hardwired to worship. Calvin said our, our hearts are an idol factory. We will make an idol out of anything. We will make a false god out of anything. But God is not worshipped if if mankind is, and so we need to point everything to him if we want to to serve him appropriately. And to do that, there's got to be some things that that change in our hearts and our lives. Based on this passage, really there's there's three crucial actions that have to take place in your heart first and then in your actions if you want to make sure you're not worshipping falsely. You think about just like the lame man heard the word of God, received the word of God, and then basically trusted in God's power alone. He didn't do anything for his healing. He didn't make himself get healed. He it d- didn't even say that he's even asking for it. Well, what we must do, and this is really the first foundational step, is that we must hear the word of God and then trust God's power alone. It's really easy for us to hear the word of God and then say, now I have got to make this happen. How many times do we say, I'm working on this stuff in my life? I'm like, oh, you the sanctifier? That the Holy Spirit sanctifies us through the word of God. Now, we need to be cooperating. We need to be wanting this. We need to be desiring this. We need to be putting ourselves in the way of this. I'm not saying you're supposed to just sit there all day and do nothing. You need to want the word of God, and you need to want to to please God, but you need to trust God. You need to be awestruck at the power of God on display. They were awestruck at the power of God on display, and what they do, they credit man. Now we know, we say it over and over again, salvation is a sovereign act of God. The lame man did nothing but receive God's grace. Now the pagan worldview of the Lyconians was this. They could not correctly interpret what God did. They had to attribute it to false gods because when they saw a visible authentication of the word of God, they attribute it to pagan idols. Their worldview kept them from it. Your worldview matters. If your worldview is a biblical worldview, you're going to know how to sift truth and error. If you don't have a biblical worldview, you're going to be tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. You know, you can't even, you can't persuade someone to become a Christian. You've got to share the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and trust God with the results. You can't argue anybody in the kingdom of God. You can't even, you know, logically persuade someone into the kingdom of God. As you're talking to them, as you're sharing the gospel, as you're, you're making the case for the gospel, God's got to move in their hearts, and remove the blinders. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that we were blinded by Satan, and that when anyone turns to the Lord, the, the veil that covered their face is taken away. They're able to see, they're able to, they're able to, to understand the gospel. We must live in God's strength for Jesus. Martin Luther said this I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit calls me by the gospel. We talk about assurance of salvation and how Christians need this and so many Christians are lacking this. You've got to receive the word of God and what it says about you when you are in Christ. I was just talking to a newer believer this week and they've been struggling recently about Am I really a Christian, and have I committed the unpardonable sin, and, and is God going to somehow you know, toss me out or, or reject me? And he called me this week. He says, I, I think I get it. Let me explain. Tell me if, if, I'm, if I'm on track, and he, he, he just lays out the whole gospel, and he goes, and, and, and this is it, right? And I'm like, absolutely. I am smiling more than you know. We're talking on the phone. I'm like, I am smiling so much right now because, yes, that's exactly it. And he goes, okay, I get it. Now, can we talk about justification? Can we talk about sanctification too? Because you're hungry to know, right? You 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 think back to when you became a believer and you were so excited about the fact that Jesus is God and and, and the gospel is true and the Bible is true, and you're like, I just want to know everything I can. Right? Awestruck at the power of God, assurance of salvation hear and do God's word you know we started this year 2016 with a challenge to get into the word of God to read the Bible all the way through or to get some kind of reading plan and some of you are like oops right now I just brought this up you're like oh no he's meddling with us Uh, yeah it's day it's day 142 or something like that you're like 142 days well that's a lot of days yeah there's 365 in the year and I know what happens when you become a believer you go I want to get into the word and like you read the Bible one day and then like a week later, you're like, I forgot. And then you, you open it up again, you read it, and then you're like, oh, it's been three days. Oh, I forgot. And then somehow, somehow, you didn't plan it this way, but somehow you realize one day you're reading the Bible every day just like you're eating every day, right? Just like you're doing a lot of things every day and because it's become a part of your life. You've, you've made it a habit in your life because you love the word of God. That's what God wants us to do, to, to hear and do God's word every day because the word of God is our compass, Man's word is not. God's word is. we got to hold unswervingly to the word of God, trust God to lead us into all the truth. So that first thing is so foundational, really is. It's really, really foundational that we have got to receive the word of God, hear the gospel, and trust God's power alone while being fully engulfed in following Christ, fully engaged, your heart, mind, and, and your actions engaged. Now the second thing and it might not be the biggest issue for everybody, but, but, but it's an issue here, and I think it's an issue for a lot of people. Just like Barnabas and Paul, they humbly refused to take God's glory. We've got to humbly refuse to steal the glory from God. Whatever glory there is, it's got to go to him. Now, the people in Lystra were thinking, we've got to get this right and worship these guys because we don't want to get killed by false gods. They're dealing with satanic fear. On the other hand, you've got Paul and Barnabas who are dealing with godly fear, godly reverence for God. And my thought is, what was on their mind was what happened to Herod. You Go back to chapter 12, and what you see is that Herod, the king, was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, verse 20. And they came to him, and they're buttering him up, they're flattering him, they're saying all sorts of good things about him because they want something from him. You know when people do that to you, they're like saying all, all kinds of good things to you and you're like, what do you want? Okay, well Herod, now in the, now, by the way, in, in that day, in that day to be worshipped as a god was the highest honor imaginable in Greek and Roman culture. And Herod wanted this a lot, okay? I think we can understand, we all like attention, right? Well, Herod is being asked for food And he's talking to the people, and he's like, you know, got his royal crown and robes on, and here's what they start crying out, the voice of a god and not a man. And he's just like, bring it on, bring it on, keep it coming, keep it coming. And immediately, an angel of God strikes him down, and it says he was was eaten by worms and died. So he's struck down immediately, but it probably took three to five days of worm infestation to actually kill him. Death by worms, it's not a good thing. But the reason why it happened, he didn't give glory to God. He didn't give glory to God. He received the glory for himself. What you see Paul and Barnabas doing is saying, oh no, no way in the world are we touching that. We're not touching that glory. Because they had a right view of God. You see, you allow yourself to to be worshipped, it's because you have a false view of the true God. And We live in a time where the cult of celebrity is at every level, at the civic level, at the national level, at the worldwide level it 's just everywhere, it permeates. We all find our hearts pulled to, to attribute glory to people who aren 't God. I know I do we 're fans of a lot of people. We look up to a lot of people, and some of us are always fishing for likes we 're always like, "Oh, come on, like me, do and here 's the thing. I've been thinking about this so much recently. Every believer needs to be encouraged. And I I think that most people don't get encouraged very much. But we don't need to beg people to do it for us. Encouragement biblically happens when God moves in your heart to build someone else up. It's not that you're getting asked. It's not that you are going to flatter them so you can get something. But God moves in your heart to, to build another believer up. And, and Christians need this desperately, and, and if, if I could say one thing about that, I'd say, ask God to make you a blessing to someone today, that you could encourage another believer, not to gain anything, but to build them up in Christ. Humility is needed. Paul and Barnabas were humble servants of Christ, 1 Peter 5 says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's what we need to do. And refuse to take any credit for anything God does. There's one more thing, and and, and I think it's the toughest thing for all of us, but it's built on the, the, the first two. And we see it in the last part of the passage, but just like Barnabas and Paul, they wholeheartedly rejected idols and they pointed people to God alone. That's what we need to do wholeheartedly reject idols and point people to God alone. Now, wholeheartedly rejecting idols is a really tough thing to do. We all know that. But you look at Israel's history, and it's all about worship. And it's all about whether they did what was right in God's sight or whether they did what was evil in God's sight. You look at the kings, uh, I think of 2 Chronicles 28 and Ahaz. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord and he built up all sorts of high places to worship false gods in in the face of God, against God. In, In the very first command, Exodus 20, verse 3 You shall have no other gods before me. But we know that our little idol factory hearts are so prone to wander away from the true God and to worship so many lesser things. But what causes us to worship idols? We think wrong thoughts about God. We think wrong thoughts about ourselves. We think wrong thoughts about others. We, we, blasphemy, by the way, is attributing to God the qualities, attributing to, to others the qualities of God. Idolatry is blasphemy. Why do you think, why do you think that so much false worship goes on, so much sin is happening, and it's and so many things in our culture, one I'll pick out is I think at the root of the insistence upon evolution is this idolatrous, blasphemous idea from Satan that we're going to attribute what God did to chance. Or what do we call it? Uh, People call it mother nature. There's no such entity. Romans 1 tells us what was What could be seen about God was very clear, was very evident in creation, and anyone who rejects God is without excuse, based on that evidence. Paul told the pagans, God let you go your own way, but what he's been preaching in Acts so far, what he's going to continue to preach is, those days ended when Christ appeared So that you look in Romans and it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we see even Paul preaching in Athens. He says in chapter 17 of Acts verse 30, God overlooked the times of ignorance. But now he is declaring to all people everywhere that they need to repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus is the only Savior. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other way. If you're here today and you're like, well, I think there might be another way, you're kind of putting yourself in the way of those pagans that were saying, hey, I think that's Jupiter and Venus. I think that's Hermes and and, uh, I think there's some false gods here. We kind of be really afraid to not and not displease them. you got to deal in truth. Once you hear the truth, you you have a moral decision to make. Turn from useless, vain things that will ruin you to the living God. Paul Paul commended the the Thessalonians. He said in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, he says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the only Savior. You know, if God isn't worshiped, then we're going to be worshiped, and we must shun foolish idols and point everything to him to be useful to him. It's very easy to say, well, the pagans are so bad, and they're doing what they ought not to do. And I could say, well, you know, what do you expect a pagan to do? They're being good pagans, they're worshiping. But once they hear the gospel, then they have a moral decision to make. They should turn to God from useless idols. But the larger responsibility falls on professing believers. There's one verse at the end of a New Testament letter that is, is just is just uh, haunts me. it's earth-shattering. It's, it's, it's convicting. It comes in the same letter that tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It comes in the same letter that says we love God because he first loved us and sent his son to be a propi- the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice for our sins. It comes at the end of 1 John. It's the very last verse of the whole letter. 1 John 5, 21, and it says this. Little children, keep yourselves From idols. Now, why do you think the Holy Spirit had John write this to believers? It's because our hearts are idol factories and God knows that. And so we must keep our hearts from idols. How do we know if we're being idolatrous? There's obvious things, right? There's obvious things that can take the place of God in our life. And we know they're wrong and we keep doing them and it's blatant, outright sin. Blasphemy, adultery, pornography, gluttony, so many other things. And that calls for confession and repentance. But there are subtle things that you would un, almost unknowingly come upon where now somehow your family has taken the place of God, or your hobbies, or your possessions, or your work, or your money. And the sure way to tell is what would you defend and get defensive about if someone questioned you about it? It's so easy to see it in other people, not ourselves. It's so easy to say, well, I don't want to talk about idolatry because, you know, that means I would have to deal with mine. If I talk about yours, I'll have to deal with mine, so I'll just ignore yours, talk behind your back about it. But hey, gluttony, greed, stealing the glory, we'll disallow a little bit here and there. We tolerate sin. It's like oil and water. It doesn't match. It doesn't mix. We have a knowledge of the truth, but we're not yielded to it at times, and, and we're yielded to the world, and we're syncretistic. We mix and match. Let me ask you a question: When was the last time you acted like a pagan? When you totally just went your own way, and told disregard of God and His Word? When Was the last time you acted like a pagan? Was it last week? Was it? Was it uh, yesterday? Was it last night? When, when was? You, when did you last talk behind someone's back? When did you last refuse to forgive? Refuse to confess your sins or refuse to reconcile with someone. When did when was the last time you engaged in outright sin and disregard the Word of God and then justify your actions? When did you last lie? When did you last harbor evil in your heart? When did you last lust after someone or something? I know I'm meddling here, but I'm meddling with my own heart too. We've got a lot to repent of. We've got a lot to confess and and reject and repent of because we're to abstain from everything God says to avoid and cling tightly to everything that God says to embrace. I think it's kind of like saying no to sugar. And My doctor's like, hey, the numbers are going up. You need to abstain from sugar. Well, I, I actually have for the last two days. I'll tell you what, every afternoon I'm like, I just need a taste. Just need a little Taste and and, and every day is a battle with sugar it's an addictive drug and i'm telling you what you if you're going to say no to the idols in your life you'll have to fight with yourself every single day you can't just go well i said no two days in a row i got it wired now oh no you'll get thrashed you have a candy bar you know in no time We need to wholeheartedly reject idols, and we also need to point people to worship God alone. We, and by the way, the church has always been like this. When when the church was born, it was in a, a, a pluralistic culture, much like ours, and we live in an increasingly pluralistic culture where we will be in the battle between truth and lies until Jesus comes again. And what do we need to do? We need to redemptively react with, interact with the world and not just be indistinguishable from the world, not just blend in. We live in a time when the biblical worldview is no longer dominant. Secular man-centered ideas reign. There is an aggressive dismantling of every biblical foundation going on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the hallmark of Christianity is our separation from the world our transcendence of its standards and our performance of something out of the ordinary. Our separation from the world, our transcendence of the world's standards and our performance in God's strength of something out of the ordinary. You probably don't know the name Rick Dempsey. He's a committed follower of Jesus Christ. He's the senior vice president for the Walt Disney Corporation. He oversees all the voices of all the animated feature films they put out he went to the master's college in santa clarita he started working for disney in 1988 he started the faith and family network he was responsible for bringing chronicles of narnia to disney he helped start the disney nature label when the movie earth was going to be put out there's he's in this room with a bunch of big time decision makers at disney and here's a christian And you ask this man how does your faith affect what you do He saw that that movie was riddled with evolution all the way through. And he said to his team, can't we just show the beauty of creation and let it stand? And so they decided to take all the evolutionary stuff out of that movie. And every nature show that Disney produces has no mention of evolution. There was one that slipped through that someone else made. But it was because a believer who had a relationship and a a place to speak into those in powerful positions, spoke up. And he pointed them to the one true God. He pointed them to God. And and it's just like Jesus said. Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses everywhere. 2 Corinthians 5, we're ambassadors for Christ. 1 Peter 2 says... Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's your reason to get up Monday morning. To be used by God, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before man that they will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Many years ago, the radical reformers known as the Anabaptists, adopted a German phrase, and I will butcher it, I'm sure, I'm not German, I'm Italian, remember this, "Nachfolge Christi, means following Christ, it, it, it's, it's, it's about discipleship, and they taught of bringing all of life under the lordship of Christ, and it got them in trouble, they were criticized by the church, but it's exactly what Jesus taught, you cannot serve two masters, you must choose, you will worship one, and you'll turn your back on the other, There's a call to worship God alone. You think about what the pagans in this passage were doing. It's a super contrast here between demonic fear of pagans worshiping false gods and godly fear of believers worshiping the one true God. Because Satan is a tyrant who wants to keep you bound and wants to keep you in fear and trapped. And God is merciful and gracious and loving and kind. And he wants to free us to serve him to worship him in spirit and in truth. Lord, thank you for the fact that there is only one thing that can counteract our idolatrous tendencies. And it is the idol-smashing shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Lord, grant us grace that we would hear and receive your word, trust your power alone, never steal your glory, and wholeheartedly reject idols so that we could point people to you, not ourselves. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.